Good morning, everyone. You can make your way back to your seat. You can make your way back to your seat. And uh, we'll get into God's Word together. Wow, you guys quieted down really well this morning. I don't know what to expect now. You're throwing me off. Oh, boys. It's so good to gather together. What a great morning. Wow. How about Betty just saying, I just can't not move when somebody says, do you have a testimony of God's goodness? How awesome is that? I love it. All right. Uh, It's good to worship together. It's good to encourage one another. It's also good to sit under God's word so that we can be strengthened and challenged, convicted, encouraged by God's word. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. The section of scripture that we're going to do that with is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the first part of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians and we looked at those two obstacles. Uh, We had the uh, affliction obstacle about how we handle suffering and how that impacts our ministry, how that impacts our witness of the gospel. We also had the friction obstacle, which is how we handle conflict amongst each other, how we love, how we forgive one another, our unity together. And so this morning we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 14, and we're going to go through verse 1. And the title is Living as Temples in a City of idols, and hopefully that makes more sense than it does right now to you, okay, as we go on. All right, so Father, as we come to your word, first of all, we're so thankful for it. We're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us through your word, that it's so readily available to us that we can just come to it. We can know you more. We can hear your great promises for us. We love your word, and as we come to it, Father, we want to place ourselves under it. Uh, We don't want to pretend that we rule over your word. We want to sit humbly under your word and allow you to do your work in our hearts this morning. And so we pray. We pray every week, but it's not, it's not just ritual, Father. We need eyes to see and we need ears to hear and we need hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. We recognize that not only can we not apply your word, we can't even understand it without your spirit at work in us. And so we just pray now, come again, fill us afresh with your spirit so that we can be changed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, and we're going to read through to 7, 1. So Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion 
in the fear of God. All right. So for the first 26 years of my life, I went to a Baptist church. Not only did I go to a Baptist church, but for the first 20 years of my life or so, uh, I had one pastor, and it was my dad. Uh, so I listened to him preach for 20 years straight. Uh, you can be thankful that we have a bit more of a rotation here. Um, <laughs> when I didn't have my dad as a pastor, uh, I had my father-in-law. So we were all in, and, uh, and it was good. I look back on my time in the Baptist church and all the uh, experiences that I had there with great thankfulness. Uh, because uh, my dad, uh, I, I, I was taught the word well. Uh, my dad was a passionate preacher of the gospel, and, uh, and so I got to hear the gospel over and over, not in a dry sense, but with a lot of life and a lot of emotion attached to it. And I got kind of the behind the curtain, because my dad would preach, and then we would be around the, the lunch table on a Sunday uh, afternoon, and he would say, you know, the, the Spirit was really working on this person, the Spirit was really working on that person, and these were, these were people who weren't uh, yet Christians who had come to the meeting, and so he would all, I, I have it kind of etched in my brain of my dad saying, it won't be long now, it won't be long now, and so then it would, sure enough, a few weeks later, the guy that he had been telling us about that he could see the Spirit working on while he preached, dad would give what was called then an altar call, and the person would be up. He'd be in tears. He'd come to the front. The church would be like, whoo, and I would be like, I knew that was coming a few weeks ago. <laughs> I kind of had the behind the curtain, behind the scenes access. And so there's a lot of great experiences that I look back on with great thankfulness growing up in the Baptist church. One of them that was right up there is the Sunday school picnic, all right? If you're not familiar with the Sunday school picnic, it happens, what? Oh, okay. Okay, well, after we maybe can talk about Adam Green Gables. It's not my expertise, but... The Sunday school picnic was probably a lot like Anne of Green Gables, but we <laughs> gathered in the summertime, maybe late August, and there was a hayride sometimes. There was a dunk tank that you'd always get Dad in because he's the pastor and everyone wants to dunk the pastor. Sometimes there's a barbecue. Sometimes there's this gloriously magnificent thing called a potluck uh, where all the old ladies in the church bring all the dishes that they've been perfecting for like 85 years. <laughs> <coughs> different dishes, not the same one. And it was fantastic. And there were a lot of good, good times. Since my parents were, uh, since dad was a pastor, uh, my parents were always heavily involved in that. And when we were really young, mom made this plywood thing of a clown that had holes that you threw beanbags through. We moved like eight times growing up. Somehow that clown made it through every <laughs> move. And you'd like go out to the shed and open it up and there'd be that clown like this standing in the corner. It was like a family pet that wouldn't die. <laughs> he just always came with us. But also at the Sunday school picnic, you had these really old school classic games like the egg and spoon race. But you also did the three-legged race, right? The three-legged race. This is where your Sunday school teachers thought, you know, 
you know what, the, the risk of injury is not really high enough as the kids running around on this uneven church lawn. Why don't we tie their ankles together? <laughs> and that'll really up the sprain and strain count. And so they would line you all up and you kind of, as a kid, sat there and prayed that you'd be joined together with someone of, of similar size and ability. And for the most part, it was all right. But undoubtedly, there was a pair uh, that, were, that were not a great match. It would be kind of like Graham Rich tied to Gary Gallant's ankle. <laughs> <clears throat> and no matter how many, how, how well they did, they were out of sync, right? They were out of sync. Um, there was misstep, there was struggle, uh, because they were unequally yoked. They were unequally yoked. They had been tied together, but they moved very differently. They were out of step with each other. In Gary and Graham's case, about four feet out of step with each other. <laughs> but that's the imagery that Paul wants us to see here when he says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There weren't many Sunday school picnics in Paul's day, so instead he uses the analogy of a yoke. And what is a yoke? A yoke was a piece of wood that went between two animals and then attached to a cart or a plow, and it kind of harnessed the power of the two animals, enabling them to pull together, like this picture here. So there's two oxen yoked together. So the yoke is that piece of wood, and there's like a U-shaped that you can kind of see it on the left one, goes under their neck and up through the wooden piece on the top, and then the pole going back in the middle, back to the cart, enabling the two oxen to pull together. Those are two oxen equally yoked. So Paul is likely pointing his readers back uh, to Deuteronomy 22, where God has told the Israelites, he tells them two things there, not to sow their fields with two kinds of seed, and not to plow the fields with an oxen and donkey yoked together. And this was to remind the Israelites of their set-apartness, but also good farming practices, right? Because if you put a big, strong oxen on one side and a donkey on the other, what's going to happen? It's always going to be leaning towards the donkey's side, right? It would be very hard to make any sort of progress or go straight, which takes us right back to Gary and Graham in the three-legged race. I'll let you decide who's the ox and who's the donkey. <laughs> <coughs> And so Paul is saying, Corinthians, don't yoke yourself with unbelievers. If we've grown up in the church, we've probably heard this verse quoted often, most often in relation to dating relationships, marriage relationships. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, we need to understand the context for why Paul would say this to the Corinthians. What does Paul have in mind when he says to them, do not be yoked with unbelievers? So if we go way back, when we started this, this, uh, this series, we talked about what kind of a city Corinth was. And so it's good to, to remind ourselves of, of the context that Paul is talking to these guys in. Corinth had two harbors. It was very multicultural, very wealthy. It hosted a huge games festival every two years, similar to the Olympic Games. Had multiple temples to Greek and Roman gods and goddesses many of whom employed temple prostitutes as part of their worship. And all that stuff created 
kind of worked together to create a city that was ripe with sin. Corinth was kind of the ancient world's Las Vegas, all right? And so the reputation of Corinth was such that the Greeks had a phrase to live the Corinthian life, to describe someone who was kind of living wildly, kind of in the same way we would say sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They said, oh, they're living the Corinthian life. So that helps us get a bit of a picture of of what this church was in the middle of. And so the situation that Paul is addressing is that some professing Christians in the Corinthian church were being pulled back into that old life. They were going back to these temple cults of any number of pagan religions in the city, possibly even engaging in the various forms of worship there, the temple prostitutes, etc. And Paul didn't take this lightly. And many believe that that was the main reason for Paul's emergency visit and his severe letter that we read about back in chapter 2. So the unbelievers that Paul is referencing here are unconverted Gentiles who were involved in worship at these Greco-Roman cults spread across the city. And Paul's command to the Corinthian, to the Corinthian church was to pull back from these unholy alliances. He's calling out to the Christian men and women in Corinth, the church that he planted and shaped and cared for, and he's saying, keep your distance. Don't get mixed up in this. Stay clear. Don't get yoked up with these people. Don't expect to win the race if this is who you're going to tie your ankle to. Do not be unequally yoked with these unbelievers. And so thousands of years later, thousands of miles away, Does this principle have any relevance to us here today? And as I mentioned earlier, for many of us who have heard this verse, it's almost used exclusively as a warning to the not yet married when looking for a husband or wife. Remember, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. But that's not really the context that Paul is talking about here. He's not mentioning marriage at all. There's nothing in these verses concerning marriage. Marriage, So there's a sense that this verse doesn't mean what you think it means. But there's also a sense in that this verse does mean what you think it means. All right. So because Paul, although he he isn't talking about marriage at all here in these verses, the principle that he's getting at would prohibit a Christian from marrying an unbeliever and entering into that marriage covenant. Now, what it doesn't mean that we need to say clearly is that in the marriage context, this principle, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, does not mean that if two unbelievers get married and later one becomes a Christian, that that person should then end the marriage and get a divorce. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15. So that's not how to apply these verses. So we can see how this principle would apply to marriage, but the principle here is is much bigger than just be careful who you marry. That can be part of it, but it's bigger than that. And sometimes, though, people have taken this verse and applied it in ways that Paul never intended it to be. So a few things that Paul doesn't mean, all right, before we get to to what he does mean. A few things that Paul doesn't mean. First, we need to take note that the yoke in Paul's analogy is not necessarily a bad thing. 
The yoke is not the negative thing here. One ox can only pull so much, but yoked together, they can pull so much more. In other, in other places in the Bible, the, the Bible talks about a yoke of slavery, which is obviously a, a negative thing, but don't mix analogies here. It's a separate, a separate analogy. Here, the yoke is good. We can do more together than we can apart. Unity in vision, unity in ministry. Barb gave the word last week about team together. The yoke isn't necessarily a bad thing. Paul's not saying generally, don't be yoked to other people. That kind of falls in with kind of the American dream type, you know, you do it your way, you don't need any help, you can just pull up your bootstraps and get it done. Don't be dependent on anybody. But Paul is not saying don't be yoked to anyone. He's saying don't be yoked to, be, to un unbelievers. Don't be yoked to unbelievers. It's an unequal yoke that doesn't work. Okay? So that's the first thing we need to, say, need to see is that the yoke isn't a bad thing. It's who the yoke is attached to that Paul has concern with. Does that make sense? All right. Second, he's not saying don't have any contact or association at all with unbelievers. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, he tells the church that it's foolish to think that they could completely avoid all unbelievers. He basically says that they'd have to fly to the moon to do so. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul even anticipates unbelievers being in the meetings of the church. And he says that you need to uh, operate in a way not to scare them off. And so uh, he's, he's not telling us that we're to have no association or no relationship with unbelievers. He's also saying, he's not saying that we can't have any friendships with non-Christians, although w wisdom is needed on how close the friendship is to be. The yoke here isn't forbidding friendships with non-Christians. Neither is he saying don't have any business relations with non-Christians. It can be good to support stores owned by Christians, hire Christian tradesmen, etc. But there's also great benef benefit to doing business and, and frequenting stores owned by non-Christians and building relationships there, being a frequent customer. So he's not saying that. Some have also taken this verse to say that we're not to have any relationship or association or cooperation with other Christians who differ from us on secondary views. But that's not what Paul is saying either. Paul isn't saying that. We might not see eye to eye with everyone, but that doesn't mean that we can't work together. We might have our differences with, say, Brunswick Street Baptist, but doesn't mean that our street-level teams can't work together to serve the city, okay? So Paul's not saying that either. So Paul is saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There should be a separation between you. But these errors come by not seeing that the separation Paul is calling us to is spiritual and not spatial, okay? He's not talking about, about physical distance. It's about spiritual separation. Paul restates his unequally yoked command at the first of 6.14, it's, how in, it's just a restating in 7.1 with how he finishes this section. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear 
of God. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians and the principle for us today is that we shouldn't enter into any relationship or bond or participate in any activity that would compromise our Christian integrity or weaken our desire towards holiness. And so we're presented with these two things to hold in tension, that we aren't to distance ourselves from the world and walk away from all unbelievers, but nor are we to compromise our Christian pursuit of a holy life. Okay? So those are kind of the two things that Paul is showing us here when he's talking about us not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. You're with me so far? Okay, good. One commentator says this, all right? I don't have it up on the screen, so you've got to really listen to what he's saying. This is not a call to create a Christian ghetto, but a summons to purify the Christian community. Paul does not have in view the life of the church in the world, but the life of the world in the church. The former is both good and inevitable. The latter must be avoided at all costs. We must not create churches that preach the glory of Christ while at the same time cultivate lifestyles that focus on attaining the pleasures of this world. We cannot declare the sovereignty of God and at the same time promote looking to the self-help strategies of our culture as the pathway to salvation. We cannot preach the power of God and wink at sin. May God grant us the strength to be his people alone. Okay? So there's a real key phrase in there where he says, Paul does not have in view the life of the church in the world, but the life of the world in the church. The former is both good and inevitable, the life of the church in the world. The latter must be avoided at all costs, the life of the world in the church. So do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The separation Paul calls us to is spiritual, not spatial. So from here, I want us to see how Paul shows us that the separation must be spiritual, but it can't be spatial, okay? Or to put it in the words of the quote I just read, how it must be a summons to purify the Christian community and how it must not be a call to create a Christian ghetto where we just kind of bubble in amongst ourselves, so first, there has to be spiritual, moral separation between believer and unbeliever. And Paul drives this home by asking us these five uh, questions immediately after stating, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He asks us these five questions, and they all come with the assumed answer of nothing. All right? So it's one of those ones where the answer is assume, assumed, and the answer is nothing. So he says... First, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Nothing. It has no partnership. The fact that righteousness is contrasted here with lawlessness is showing us that Paul doesn't have in view God's free gift of righteousness to those in Christ, but rather the working out of that, that living righteously. If we've been declared by righteous by God in His Son, how then can we then live a life of lawlessness, a life of wickedness. Next, he says, what fellowship has light with darkness? So if you remember back in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, Paul talked about how we were all once in darkness, 
blinded by Satan, but then God shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. Having that light shine on us, enabling us to see the glory of Christ, the sinfulness of our sin, how can we then shut our eyes and stumble around in the darkness again? What fellowship has light with darkness? The next one is a bit strange, isn't it? It says, what accord does Christ have with Belial? This is a strange phrase because uh, the name Belial is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a name Paul has given here to Satan. It means worthlessness. I'm not a student of Greek and Hebrew myself, but it's some scholars believe that Paul used the name Belial here uh, instead of just saying Satan because he couldn't pass up on a good pun with the word yoke, which I'm encouraged by, that in the middle of Paul writing scripture, moved by the Spirit, in the middle of this very stern address to the Corinthians, he just saw a good pun and he capitalized on it. <laughs> so that's good. It, 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 the, the word Belial is very similar with the word for, used for having no yoke. Right? So he just jumped on it and went with it. Uh, but what accord does Christ have with Belial? So often we try to glaze things over. We're so good at thinking about things from a very unspiritual view. And Paul wants to kind of shake the Corinthians back to having that biblical view of the world around them. These aren't just innocent pastimes. They're not harmless relationships. There's an enemy at play here. There is a devil. He is prowling around like a lion. You're with Christ. What benefit will you get from fellowship with Satan? It's worthless. Belial. Worthlessness. There's a worthlessness to going down that path. Next, he says, what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? Or what spiritual common grounds do believers and unbelievers share? One has a life focused on Christ. The other, a life focused on self. One lives for treasures on earth. One for treasures yet to come in heaven. One seeks the glory of God. The other, the praises of men. How do these things come together? What is the common spiritual ground that they share? Doesn't mean that we don't have common ground. Of course we have common ground. But spiritual common ground. And all these questions kind of build to Paul's fifth and final question where he says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? So if the Old Testament forbid the entrance of idols into the physical temple, then how much more offensive is idolatry in the life of the believer, a living temple of God? And so these five questions kind of work to help shake us out of the apathy we can sink into in regards to sin and living a holy life. We're so good at ignoring the spiritual war we are in when it comes to our decisions regarding relationships, partnerships, our activities. So often we make these decisions without putting any weight to the questions that Paul has just presented us with. So often we don't look at things through the same lenses that Paul wants us to look at things through. So some of the Corinthians who were caught up in this mixed bag of Christianity and cultic temple worship, they probably repented after reading Paul's letter. They probably felt stirred in their spirit 
and they took serious his warning not to be unequally yoked. There were others, though, that undoubtedly scoffed at Paul's warning. Come on, Paul, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? You know, lighten up, buddy. I'm a pretty strong Christian. I'm pretty mature. A little stop by the temple of Aphrodite to see some of my buddies after work is not going to derail me. What's the big deal? We're very good at saying what's the big deal, aren't we? On Friday night at Fuel, we've been going through the Youth Alpha series. We did an episode on evil. We talked about how the devil's at work, that he has three attacks he uses, accusations, temptations, lies. That's one of the big ones. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's it hurting? This morning, Judah was walking around. Some of you are going to find this story really gross, but... <coughs> Those of us with kids will just say, yeah. <laughs> What's the big deal? This morning, Judah was walking around with a piece of blueberry bagel that one of his sisters gave him. I was in the uh, living room, and I heard this faint splash in the distance. Instantly, I know someone has left the bathroom door open. I spring up. I run down the hallway and prevented my son from putting the bagel in his mouth that he had just dipped in the toilet. <laughs> <clears throat> I grabbed the bagel out of his hand and I threw it in the bathroom garbage rather quickly and he looked up at me as if to say, what's the big deal? <laughs> what's the big deal? Overreact much, Dad? And I'm like, Jude, big deal. Big deal, buddy. You can't dip a bagel in the toilet and then eat it. Big deal. Big deal. But that's just what we believe. Some of the Corinthians had bought the lie. What's the big deal? Some of us this morning have bought the lie. What's the big deal? We're just like Judah looking up and saying, come on, Dad, it's a blueberry bagel. And Paul is showing us it's been dipped in the toilet. Stay away. Have nothing to do with it. Does that make sense? I was very encouraged when God did that this morning. <laughs> <clears throat> and I said, what a great picture, God. <laughs> Paul wants us to see the seriousness of compromise, to see the seriousness of following Christ and being yoked with unbelievers and a life of idolatry. He wants us to see that this morning and not believe the lie of what's the big deal so when we look at this principle of do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers for some circumstances you are in uh, it's very easy and you know and maybe even the spirit is bringing it to light and you know what you need to do for other things there's not hard and fast commands in scripture to guide you and it takes wisdom it takes courage it takes discernment on how to apply this don't be unequally yoked to unbelievers principle into your workplace, into your friendship, into various activities you're involved in. And this principle needs to be applied case by case. It might look different from person to person. Okay, so just to give you an example, and I'm not saying that these have yes or no answers, just throwing the questions out that make us think how we can, how these 
how this principle needs to evoke questions as to what we're involved in, all right? So it's good to do business with a non-Christian, but should you enter into a legal business partnership with a non-Christian, all right? It's good to have friends who aren't believers, but should you go on a long extended vacation with someone who is not a Christian, where you're spending two or three or four weeks straight together, sun up and sun down? How close should you be? If you go on vacation to countries like India, Japan, Thailand, should you visit the various shrines and temples? And if so, how should you visit them? Just as a nice tourist attraction? How close association should we have with non-Christian religious activities and services? You see how we take that principle, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and there's not hard and fast yes or no answers, but it makes us think, okay, we, Paul is serious here, right? He's not joking around, and he's serious with the Corinthians with what they're involved in. And so we need to ask these questions about our relationships, about our friendships, about the activities we're involved in, about the things we're associated with. Those are all examples of questions that would help us to apply the principle we see put forth here by Paul, this summons for the church to pursue holiness. Paul wants us to see that there must be a separation spiritually from the world around us. But I think he also wants to see that there mustn't be a separation spatially, meaning as the church we must remove ourselves, we must not remove ourselves from the world, even though he's just called us to remove the world's ways from the church. Okay? So what Paul says at the end of verse 16 on are so key because they kind of give us this twofold answer for one, why we must pursue holiness. Um, and at the same time, show us that we can't just pull back from the world and distance ourselves in order to do so. Okay? So he does that by reminding us of this great truth of our identity as the temple of God. As the temple of God. Listen to what he says, the end of 16 on. He says, after asking all these questions, he says, For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We are the temple of the living God. I don't know if there's a more encouraging truth for the church today than to grab hold of the fact that we are the temple of the living God. We have the Spirit of God living in us as individuals, yes, but corporately, when we gather together, we are the temple of the living God. And I know what we mean when we quote Moses and say, unless you go with us, God, we don't want to go. But as the new covenant people of God, God is with us because he's in us. We're the temple of the living God. He's not in a pillar of cloud. He's not in a pillar of fire. He's not in a tabernacle. He's not in a temple. He's in us. He's in the church. The church is the temple of the living God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. In the Old Testament, God's glory dwelled 
in the temple. There was a building that was distinct from all other buildings in the city because it housed the presence of God. It displayed the glory of God. People met God there. At times, God's glory was so strong, so powerful, the priests couldn't even stand to do their work. They couldn't even stand up in order to minister. It flattened them face down on the ground. But that was just a flicker, just a, just a foreglow of the glory that was to come. When we read in John 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus came to earth, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God. God no longer lives in a tent or a temple built by human hands, nor will he ever, because God's glory is found in Jesus. To meet God, to worship God, we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God. And then if you look at Ephesians 2, Paul says that Jesus is the cornerstone. And then he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Paul gives us this analogy that's kind of hard to wrap our heads around, but Jesus is the cornerstone. We're all bricks formed together to house the Spirit of God, to be a temple for the living God. So far from just another social organization meeting the needs of our city, far from just a community of people that enjoy singing for some reason, far from just a friendship group, the church is now the temple of God. The church is now the temple of God. God's residence is neither in a literal temple in Jerusalem nor simply just heaven, but the church of which you and I are a part of. That's why we can't pull back and isolate ourselves from the city around us because we carry the glory of God. We are the temple. Listen to the promises that we have. Sometimes we can just blank out when we read these verses, especially when they go back into these Old Testament quotes. Sometimes we can just blank out. But listen to what the promises that God has given us. He says, I dwell among you. I walk among you. I am your God. You are my people. I am your Father, you are my sons and daughters. These promises are ours, Christ Central Church. They're our promises bought for us by the blood of Jesus. And so we can look at these commands like do not be unequally yoked and our sinful hearts can just be like God takes, God takes, God takes, God takes. But look at what he's given himself. He's given us himself. We are the temple of the living God. He says, I dwell among you. I walk among you. I'm your God, and you're my people. I'm your father, and you're my sons and my daughters. And so if we look at, you know, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and we think, oh, I've got to apply that to my life, and it's going to restrict me from here, and it's going to restrict me from that. Why on earth? 
Would I do that? And if that's what God wants of me, why don't I just pull back from everything? Why don't I just live a very isolated life and not be around anybody? The answer to those questions is because we are the temple of the living God. We're the temple of the living God. He dwells amongst us, not as just some cool, casual deity, but with all the love and strength of a father. He dwells amongst his people. And so we have to grab hold of this. We are the temple of the living God. And if we are the place of God's presence, if we are his temple, if we have these promises, then why not cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and pursue holiness? Why not be on guard against all forms of idolatry? And let's not pull back and close ourselves off the Old Testament temple in the midst of the city of Jerusalem in close proximity to other buildings around it and yet set apart and distinct as the place of God's presence. We live as temples in a city of idols. Do we see that? Do we see God's great call on us as a church? It's a call to pull back from that sinful way of life, pursue a life of holiness, for there to be separation, for us to be a set-apart people, a distinct people in the way that we live, in the way that we enter into relationships, in the endeavors that we do, in the activities we take part in. Paul's saying, don't be unequally yoked, but it's not pull-back distance. We're to be right in the city as the temple of God, as carriers of God's presence in a city that desperately needs God's presence. That's what Paul's called us to. That's what God's called us to as temples of the living God right in the midst of a city of idols. And so two questions we need to ask when we look at this is, are we unequally yoked? Are there things that the Spirit has even brought to your heart, brought to your mind this morning as we're looking at God's Word and you think, yeah, I feel that unequal yoke right now. I feel that heavy yoke on me. I know I'm involved in things I shouldn't be. I've got myself in a mess, whatever it might be. I don't really see a separation, that spiritual separation that Paul is calling me to. And maybe you're saying, yeah, I've pulled back. I've pulled back from people. I've pulled back from this area. I've pulled back from that. I've just seen uh, a spatial Separation is what was needed when really I need to be in there as the presence of God, showing people the glory of God as a temple of the living God. Let's pray together.